Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On October 17th, Canada became the second country in the world to legalize the recreational use of cannabis. The first was Uruguay, which decriminalized cannabis a few years ago. But Canada's move is arguably more significant to international relations for the fact that it is a member of the G7 and is a country that has a long-standing commitment to international law and the rules-based international order. But as my guest today, Ambassador David Johnson, explains, this move puts Canada squarely in violation of its international treaty obligations. David Johnson is a former U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs. He is also currently a member of the U.N.'s International Narcotics Control Board. This is a body that oversees countries' compliance with international treaties related to drugs, including what is known as the 1961 Single Convention. We discuss the implications of Canada's apparent violation of this treaty and what that means for global efforts to control illicit drugs trafficking. More broadly, though, we discuss what happens when progressive policies like the decriminalization of cannabis run afoul of the rules of the international system. And I think you can tell I'm kind of tortured here. On the one hand, I strongly support the decriminalization of cannabis. On the other hand, I strongly support a rules-based international order. Canada's move puts these two in direct conflict. In any case, this was an interesting conversation. And as always, feel free to get in touch with me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. You can do so using the uh, contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. You can also reach me via Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. And please do leave a review of the show on iTunes. If you are a regular listener to this show, tell the world why you tune in uh, week in, week out. All right, now here is my conversation with Ambassador David Johnson. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So the, the International Narcotics Control Board uh, is one of the entities that's created by the International Drug Control Conventions, uh, principally the uh, single convention of 1961, uh, which was is, is one of the few almost universal legal instruments uh, that virtually every country on the planet adheres to. And what the, the convention created was uh, a board which would oversee the state's parties 
that is the countries that are that have that have uh, signed and ratified the conventions oversee their implementation of their of the convention's obligations and it it meets uh three times a year uh it produces an annual report which uh publishes its views on states parties implementation of their obligations and it has engagements with the uh with these countries from time to time uh, to discuss issues that uh, that arise in, in, in relation to that. Um, but you, I, I just say, so you as a member of the board, you do not represent the United States on the board, correct? You are an individual expert. Right. The, the way the, the selection of the board's members works is that three of the members uh, are nominated uh, by the World Health Organization. The remaining 10, and there are 13 total, are nominated by individual states' parties, and the, they are finally elected by the UN's Economic and Social Council, which meets in New York, by a secret ballot, uh, which is uh, an interesting way to do things on, on the international stage. It's one of the few, in fact, the only one I have any direct personal knowledge of that's done in, in such a way, generally those uh, types of selections are made on the basis of uh, regional groups uh, coming to consensus and, and uh, elect and, and really selecting rather than, than electing people. But this is done uh, in, through a, a secret ballot process. Uh, it's a fairly broad um, membership across the globe, uh, though I'd, I'd have to say uh, the, the membership is a little weighted to the Americas and to Europe uh, by contrast with the uh, other parts of the world, and, and in particular, sub-Saharan Africa is not currently represented on the board. So, so you as a member of this board basically oversee countries' implementation and following of the, the 1961 Single Convention and other related treaties. Can, can you just describe broadly what those treaties um, obligate countries to do? In general, the treaties obligate countries to work together to deter uh, the trafficking and, uh, and the drugs that they have agreed that they would, uh, would control. And the limitations are that these drugs will only be used for medical and scientific purposes. And so uh, that's where the rub comes in with Canada, because uh, while you can make a lot of arguments, uh, I don't think anyone with a straight face would argue that Canada's move this week uh, is in order to provide these controlled substances for either medical or scientific purposes. No, I mean, it's explicitly the legalization of the recreational use of, of marijuana. So I guess one of my key questions to you is, you know, I, I am a firm believer in a rules-based international order, a committed multilateralist, yet I also, you know, probably like most Canadians, um, have a liberal view when it comes to, you know, the recreational use of, of marijuana and its uh, decriminalization. So how does one sort of square those two kind of what might be called like progressive principles? Yeah, so I, I think in, in the case of Canada, and I've I've uh, had the privilege to represent the United States and Canada for four years. It's a particularly uh, uh, significant dilemma because um, if, if I, I could be so bold, if, if there's a, um, a state religion in Canada, it's adherence to international law. It's a very fundamental principle of the way Canadians see themselves in the world. Uh, 
But on the other hand, these conventions, as uh, as negotiated and as agreed to by Canada and uh, most of the rest of the planet, are very explicit and they're very carefully and, if you will, tightly negotiated. And the prohibitions uh, really don't have uh, escape uh, valves or escape hatches, if you will. So I, it's it's difficult for me to see. Uh, you know, to pre- prescribe, if you will, a way that uh, that Canada squares its circle. I say that, but also say, nonetheless, uh, the board is committed, as as the statement you referenced uh, uh, makes clear, uh, to continued engagement with Canada. But we see Canada as, a, as an important partner in the work that we do. And also, I think it's important to to realize that these are not the international cannabis conventions. They're the international drug conventions. There's a range of other issues on which uh, I would venture to say Canada finds the board, its ideas, its mechanisms, uh, and the the obligations that other states have under these conventions extremely important for Canada. So, uh, so let's actually, can, can we talk about that? Like, What, what good do these conventions do in, in the world? Well, they they are the basis on which most governments uh, control the trafficking and the use of these so-called scheduled substances or drugs. And they include things like heroin, fentanyl, uh, cocaine, a range of substances, which I venture to say the vast majority of Canada finds it extraordinarily useful to have an international mechanism to control and deter trafficking in those substances for the health and safety of Canadian citizens. So, so for so, example, how does these conventions um, control the international uh, trafficking of like heroin or fentanyl? So the, these are the mechanisms by which the, the, the nations of the world have agreed that, that trafficking in those substances will be prohibited. So that is the method under international law by which Canada can assert and does assert uh, that all nations should work together so that as little as possible, heroin is trafficked into everyone's country. And that that is the basis on which Canada and the United States, uh, Mexico, try to cooperate to deter the trafficking of these substances. That's the way and that's the mechanism under which uh, they engage with China in particular on the precursors to fentanyl uh, production. And think those, those sorts of uh, rules-based mechanisms are the way governments work together. Uh, now, they, they could, on the basis of, if you will, comedy and reciprocity, try to do this. But it, it is not just in general, but it is, uh, it is, I think, without exception, a better basis to have a written document, to have mechanisms on which to rely and to which provide expectations about how governments are going to work together on these issues rather than having an ad hoc engagement every single day you get up in the morning. Yeah, I mean, that's just like a basic argument for a rules-based international order and, and, and international yes. law. Um, Absolutely. But but then, then again, you know, it seems to sort of come into conflict with our more modern day approach to some of the drugs prescribed in, in those that 1961 convention, you know, our, our view towards cannabis 
today is, is far different than it was in, in 1961. I mean, I, I'm talking to you maybe like 400 feet from a marijuana store in Denver, Colorado. You know, th- these, these things are, are just sort of no longer the kind of taboo or, or frankly illegal than they were back then. So how does one sort of either A, update um, these conventions to reflect these kind of, you know, country, what countries of Canada like done or what states like Colorado have done, um, or B, sort of, do you jettison the whole thing? Well, I, I, I think that it would be uh, a challenge to do any of those things. Nonetheless, they have within them the, cap- you know, the, the capacity to be updated and changed. Uh, all international agreements you know, have, have that sort of capability within them. The challenge is, though, this is uh, the point of view that the government of Canada has decided to, uh, you know, to make part of its practice is probably thought to be widely shared in Canada and in the United States, but it's not broadly shared around the world. And these are universal conventions. So if you go to significant parts of Europe, uh, actually to much of Latin America, to almost all of Africa, almost all of Asia, you'll find a much different attitude and set of concerns. So that really is the challenge here is working together to come to a different point of view, if indeed that's what you know, the world, quote unquote, wants to do. Uh, so that that's the challenge before Canada, if it wants to change these universal obligations. Um, and, and that's that that is that's a that's a high hurdle to try to get over. I, I would not, you know, I'd not underestimate that at all. Nonetheless, there I mean, there are fora for, you know, in, in which these issues can be engaged. It's not it's these are not the Ten Commandments. Uh, they're they're an international uh, set of obligations. They were negotiated by the by the states parties to the to the conventions and they were agreed together. And they have been uh, not updated, but uh, they've had. Uh, additional documents uh, from time to time, the latest in 1988, uh, but they are, they're, they're not changing them is, is not a simple and straightforward thing. Neither would Canada want international law to be simple and straightforward just to make uh, quick changes to without a deliberative process. So, so how did um, say the international narcotics control board approach you know, issues like U.S. states legalizing recreational marijuana, you know, like like, you know, here in here in Colorado. Right. It not that much differently than the board has with Canada. But because um, the this has been done in the United States at the what's known under international law, subnational unit level. And there remains a national obligation, which the United States government continues to adhere to. It's just a more complicated issue in the United States, by contrast with Canada, where it's a national uh, it's a it's a national obligation and it's a national step that's been taken. Okay, so so I mean, it seems, though, that like the trend, uh, at least in um, the developing the developed world is 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 sort of towards, you know, ending sort of prohibition of of, of cannabis. And you know, I, I, let, let me let me challenge that just yeah, a little please bit. Yeah, please do, please do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I think, uh, you know, I live in the, you know, we all live in the world of concentric circles. Mm-hmm. And in Denver, I'm certain that it looks that way because, you know, you have to draw a pretty big concentric circle before you start to get to, to significant different opinions. Well, just, just, just Kansas, articulate. not too far. Well, <laughs> um, but, but if you, if you're, if you're, 
if you're in Paris, you, you come up with a much different point of view. If you're in, uh, you know, Lagos, your point of view is totally different. If you're in Japan, which uh, is certainly part of the developed world, uh, your, your point of view is significantly different as well. So I think, you know, all politics may be local, but this is an, an, an issue where the change in point of view is not only not universal, it's actually circumscribed to a, a fairly um, not small, but not not a, a, a an extremely large part of the, the world politics. Uh, no, I, I, I definitely take that point. But but I think maybe the point I was trying to make was, can a convention like the, the single convention from 1961 sort of survive if moral powers like Canada, as you said, you know, they are a profound adherent to international law and economic giants like the United States, perhaps you know, withdraw from certain elements of this treaty? It would seem that... Um, sort of that the convention's prohibition on cannabis will be sort of de facto um, abrogated, uh, you know, time and time again by more and more countries. And how problematic is that to the undermining of sort of narcotics, you know, controlling the narco narcotics trade sort of more broadly? I, I think there's certainly, uh, this, this is a, a risk. Um, I think it, it depends in some measure on how the state's parties, which have uh, chosen not to adhere to that obligation, uh, conduct themselves over time, uh, both with respect to that obligation, as well as to with respect to the other aspects of the, of the conventions. Um, I don't think, you know, by any means that this is the death knell for the conventions. Uh, I don't think it should be. I certainly don't think it is uh, within the interest of Canada or the United States that it be so. Uh, and and I mean, the the issue that we all have now with the extraordinary level of uh, fatalities from uh, from from fentanyl related products and, and opioids more generally, I think it is is such as a ringing illustration of the value and benefit of trying to work together to control these substances that uh, I think that it, it will be very much in the interest of the, of the state's parties that are looking differently at cannabis to do everything they can to keep these conventions intact. So, so then can I just ask, like, what do you think is like the major global implication of Canada's decision to legalize recreational use of, of marijuana? I think I, I would be a, a little, um, arrogant. If I told you, I, I knew exactly what that would be. Uh, I would I would say, though, that uh, Canada's and the other states parties interest in the universal adherence to these conventions and to the uh, habits and practices that have been developed in terms of law enforcement and cooperation uh, in, in terms of uh, information sharing with respect to all of the aspects of the convention could be undermined. And I think that uh, that doesn't serve uh, the of Canada's interest, doesn't serve any of the state's party's interest. So I think that's the that's the issue that uh, that is is important to keep our eye on, uh, that while I, I don't look at the international rules based system of some kind of, you know, jingo game where you're trying to pull out you know, little pieces and see what happens uh, that, you know, it, it's it falls like an edifice. I do think that every time you 
behave in a way that a particular piece of that edifice, edifice is unimportant to you, uh, you give succor to some state that might think that some other part of the edifice, which is important to you, is worth adhering to. Yeah. So I, I think it, I think it's it's important to to behave well in order for every you know every country on the planet to to have its uh, its interest looked after and to work together. Where you see, you know, if you think changes should be made, to you know, seek partners to do that on the international stage and not just do things unilaterally and you know let the chips fall where they may. The thing is, I I agree with you, um, and I, I'm 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 sort of like channeling perhaps like John Bolton when I say, you know, except for uh, cannabis, you know, but that's the same, that's the same mentality though, that, that, that he's, uh, takes when, when he's approaching these international and multilateral treaties, he sort of picks and chooses them you know, in an ad hoc manner in terms of what serves us temporal interests at that moment. So man, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck here again, between my um, sort of, you know, lifelong dedication to the international world order and sort of my progressive values that, you know, it's it, people not ought not be thrown in jail for uh, or or be criminally punished or civil civilly punished for the use of marijuana. It's a tough one. It it is it is not simple. Uh, I, I would also say that the the conventions do not require punishment for the use of a product. Uh, they do require that strictures be in place for possession or and certainly for trafficking. Mm-hmm. So there, there is some. So the uh, marijuana dis- store at the end of my block ought to be shut down. Uh, it, it is hard to reconcile its uh, its its commerce with the obligations of the states parties under this particular convention. Yes, that's that's that's, that's ambassadorial. Uh, thank you. Um, you thank you welcome. so much. This was this was very helpful. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ambassador Johnson. That was interesting. It really is um, kind of a a unique sort of pickle for, I don't know, people like me who are simultaneously committed to marijuana decriminalization and a liberal rules-based world order. I'm also a Canadian. I don't know if you guys know that. uh, I've never lived there, but I have Canadian citizenship. All right. See you later. Bye. Bye.